today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Nikki Bart. Dr. Bart is a 2010 John Monash Scholar. She's also a very well-renowned cardiologist and an elite mountaineer. In fact, Nikki Bart is a world record holder for being part of the first ever mother-daughter team to climb Mount Everest. Upon reaching the top, they also became the first mother-daughter duo to complete the seven summits, climbing the highest peak of every continent in the world. Nikki has also skied unsupported to the North Pole and climbed the tallest volcano in remote Antarctica. As part of her John Monash Foundation scholarship, Nikki completed a Doctor of Philosophy at Oxford University, looking into the study of oxygen deprivation and the clinical implications on the body. I'm very pleased to say that Nikki joins us from Boston. G'day, Nikki. Welcome to the program. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm not even really sure where to start with an introduction like that. Maybe we can go, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's go to the United States. What brought you to Boston? So I'm, I'm here on a sabbatical as a visiting academic. I'm working at the Brigham, Women, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a big cardiovascular center and at Harvard Medical School. And I'm working on um, specifically this kind of new revolution of uh genetic testing and gene technology in, in heart disease. So it's fabulous to be at, at the hub of um, so much great science um, and have the opportunity to really collaborate with some incredible people. And what's the plan with respect to how long you'll, you'll be over there in the United States? Yeah, so I'm hope, hoping to have a 12-month stint over here um, to really kind of be able to immerse myself in everything that um, Harvard Medical School has to offer and to uh, participate in some kind of world-leading research. Um, so, And very fortunately, St. Vincent's Hospital, which is my home hospital back in Australia, has been in full support of me being here. Are you able to make any observations on the difference between having having now worked in both the, the Australian health system and the health system in the United States? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. Being in the Australian health system, we are so fortunate to have Medicare for all of its negatives. Um, I love that working at St Vincent's Hospital, that it, on the cardiac ward, we give exactly the same level of care to the homeless patient who's come, you know, from Green Park with a heart condition to the person from Vaucluse who's come from their yacht um, and, and they get mm. exceptional, exceptional level care. Um, I've, I've found it interesting navigating the insurance system in the US um, and, and I felt extremely grateful for everything that we've got in Australia. Um, but equally, I think being in a new system with uh, lots of different opportunities, particularly in terms of the science and the huge data sets that I've got access to, um, is incredibly exciting. And I think always travel opens your eyes and, um, you know, ignites your curiosity. And so just being able to work in a different system has been incredible. So if we look at your medical career as a cardiologist, what do you actually do? Tell us about the work that you do. So I'm a heart failure and transplant cardiologist. That's my subspecialty, but um, you've already got a sense of me. I wear lots of different hats. Um, I'm not very good at doing <laughs> one thing at the same time. <laughs> so um, if, you, if you look up my subspecialty, that's what I do. So I'm, I'm one of six 
heart failure and transplant cardiologists in New South Wales doing what I do. So we retrieve some of the sickest patients from across New South Wales and um, from across um, Australia. And what we do is we, we keep them alive until they're suitable for a transplant. We assess their suitability for a transplant and then um, we assess um, who's a good donor for them. So that's that's one thing that I often am doing at 3 a.m. We'll, we'll be matching a donor to a potential recipient for a heart transplant, which is a huge responsibility and involves a lot of... How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, look, it's always at 3 a.m. I don't know why. Um, so, you know, you kind of get up, make yourself a really strong cup of tea and then have a good look at the list. Um, and, and we have, there's a number of algorithms that we use, but it's also, it comes down to, you know, who are the patients under your care, who are the sickest. It's based on size and it's based on some kind of very complex immunology. Um, but but it, it is always a tough call um, and, and, a, and mm. you know, you always respect what a gift you're, you're giving to someone and, and what a second opportunity at life. And so how long have you been there at, um, at St. Vincent's and I think you said the Victor Chang Institute? Yeah, so my, my other part of my job is I'm a, a laboratory head at the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. So um, I lead a lab group looking at causes of heart failure, um, which has been really fun because it's been expanding uh, yearly um, with PhD students and um, other types of students. And what's great is that I love the clinical medicine. I love the mystery of, you know, a patient in front of you and you've got to work out everything that's going on with them and you've got to apply all your science. Um, and sometimes, you know, as much as we know in medicine, there's still so much we're learning. And the research really bridges that gap for me because I'll have questions that will come up clinically when I see a patient that I can then kind of really delve into in in my research um so i i very much enjoy that and I, i've been doing that for the last um four years and so before you got into that side of medicine what were you doing so i cardiology training is a very long slog um it's it's like how long, how you know, long does it take <laughs> <laughs> too, too, too long, Justin. <laughs> too long. <laughs> too long. So you've got to, you've got to do a medical degree first. You've got to become a doctor, and then yeah. specialty. So what? Yeah. What yeah. does all of that look like, Nikki? Yeah. So you know, six years of medical school, then another many years of general medical training, getting your kind of general medicine um, up to scratch, mm. and then um, you do specialised cardiology training, and then you do specific. Um, subspecialty training. So I'm trained in advanced imaging, so things like cardiac MRI and virtual angiograms, which is where we can look at your heart arteries without actually um, putting any holes in you um, and have a pretty good idea. And then I trained in, in transplant and heart failure. And it was only then when I, I had all of those skills that I was appointed as a consultant cardiologist. So where did you do your undergrad medical degree? So I'm um, a very proud member of the University of New South Wales community. Um, I loved being a medical student there. I was part of all different um, types of activities. And I did a lot of my climbing while I was a medical student there. And I was very much supported to have a life outside of medicine, which, you know, has been so vital to me as a human being. Um, so I, I absolutely love that. And then I did my PhD at Oxford University, which really gave me that kind of research grounding. So are the sounds of it, you're a Sydney sider, Nikki. You, have you, you, you lived, you grew, you grew up in, in Sydney? Yeah, I grew up around Sydney and now live and work in Sydney, but um, I'm 
not someone that stays still for very long. So I, I love the opportunity to travel for, sh for short stints or longer stints and um, really love the opportunity to live somewhere else because then you get to really get to know people, make good friends, immerse yourself in the culture. Um, so I think I, I definitely carry that um, stereotype of being an Aussie that loves to put a backpack on and get on a plane anywhere. Well, let's talk about that because some of your achievements away from the operating table are just extraordinary. So where should we start? When did you first begin um, a love of mountaineering, climbing mountains? Where did that come from, Nikki? Started from a very early age. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor and he came from Europe um, as a refugee to Australia and he loved skiing. So from, you know, as early as when I could walk, I was put on a pair of skis and he used to come with us on ski holidays and there was no messing around on a ski holiday. He'd, he'd go out for his work, walk, you know, the second the sun would come up, he'd put his hands in the snow and then he'd come back and he'd wake us up with these cold, snowy hands and we'd be up <laughs> having breakfast in the <laughs> out on the ski slopes. Yes. <laughs> and I think, it, you know, he, he, even if we would ski every year or every couple of years, he made it seem like each day was the best day ever and, and very much had this kind of attitude of, of um, living each day as if it was his last. And I think that I developed my utter love of being in the mountains, you know, needing to be up at the crack of dawn and outside from him. And I was very lucky that, you know, I, I really cut my mountaineering teeth on kind of Perisher chair, you know, the windy triple chair in, in Mount Perisher sitting there. Yes. <laughs> you wouldn't think that that's a great, yes. great training ground for 8,000 metre peaks or being in the death zone, but it, it really was because I, I had that... <laughs> had that from when I was very I've little. Been, you know, I've, been, I've been to Perisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really all started then and um, I never really thought that I would be a high altitude mountaineer, certainly never thought that I would hold a world record. Um, but when I was uh, finishing school, my mum who had never really done much um, kind of outdoor stuff and, and neither of us had spent a proper period of time in the tent, we decided that for an adventure, we should go and walk, um, you know, guided to Everest Base Camp. And it was a really interesting kind of three-week experience because uh, the Himalayas are just so spectacular and I was uh, completely blown away by so how old how old were you when you when you so I was about 17 when we did that okay um, yeah and it, and it was really you know it was our first kind of big trip and for me it was like beyond anything that I'd ever done um and I remember sitting in a tent and looking at the Himalayas and reading Sir Edmund Hillary's book and thinking I can't imagine what it would feel like to go beyond base camp or you know go go and climb any of these big peaks um mm. I, I remember that mm. so clearly and kind of journaling about my love of the mountains and my love of the outdoors and I, I just remember that it was never something that was ever within my grasp um, and then when I finished school I started to do a lot more outdoors activities and rock climbing mountaineering um, heading to New Zealand we're so lucky to have such a good training ground over there um, yes. and then throughout university I kind of started my um seven summits journey, but not, not knowing that that's what it was going to be. So we, mum and I call ourselves the Forrest Gump of mountaineering because, you know, we climbed <laughs> one, went, well, ah, why not climb one going. more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 
so that's kind of how it all all came to be. There was never this kind of goal of of climbing big peaks. It was just you know um, Kilimanjaro felt achievable, and it doesn't involve any technical aspects. So we trained for that, and that went well. And then we thought, okay, what what should we do next? And and it was really just because we were loving being together, loving. Um, seeing all these different parts of the world you know when you climb Mount Elbrus which is the tallest mountain in Russia which is the Europe peak um your base camp is like a giant petrol drum so there are six people per giant petrol drum and so you know even the opportunity to have have set up a sleeping bag in a petrol drum you you would never do if you weren't on this kind of expedition Um, and because it's Elbrus yeah. and Russia, you know, there's every snowboarder at the bottom of the peak and then there's the military training mm. and then there's these mountaineers and it's just it's it's just this different world. And so we thought, oh, that's fabulous. And then, then we got to the point where actually now we needed some more technical skills to be able to climb these big mountains and um, we did a lot more training in New Zealand and um, South America and it was then and kind of the training involved? Yeah, I believe that training involves being physically and mentally fit and getting Mm. all your routines down to muscle memory. And so, you know, when you think about training for something like Everest where you've got the Kumbu Icefall, which is between base camp and camp one, so what people don't realise is that to acclimatise, you actually climb the mountain two or three times before you make your summit push. So that icefall that I'm sure you've seen in, you know, one of the Everest movies where you're on all those precarious ladders strung together, Mm. you end up doing that two or three times. So, you know, how do you train for something like that where it's terrifying and actually you're not your full self because you've not got enough oxygen? Um, Part of that is just putting everything you can into muscle memory. So we would put go to New Zealand to the Fox Glacier and the Franz Josef Glacier and just practice clipping and unclipping ropes and remembering, you know, we would practice, we'd have someone come past us and bustle us as if they would on the fixed lines on Everest because deaths happen just because you're polite and you unclip and then you fall off the side, you know, you let someone pass Mm. so you're not really allowed to unclip. And so we would just practice so you would never, it doesn't matter how tired, how hungry, how oxygen deprived, you would just um, stay on your ropes. We, we practiced by putting ladders across swimming pools and up trees. More than once we got approached by the fire department to say, you know, are you rescuing a small kitten? What are you doing with that ladder up? <laughs> yeah, you guys okay? What's going on? <laughs> this ladder work's getting a little bit weird. <laughs> I, I used to carry a huge backpack um, to the hospital that I was working at, whichever hospital I was working at, I'd plan my day to walk to and from work and um, I'd fill a backpack and you have to just get more and more trains. So I'd fill a backpack initially with 10 kilos and 15 kilos and 20 kilos and 25 then 30. And because I'd also have to then do a full day at a hospital, I'd full, fill the backpack with water. And that meant that if I got tired, I could empty some of the water on the way home. So <laughs> that was, you know, one of my strategies of balancing. Yeah. <laughs> And I'd have to say to hospital security, look, it's, it is a 30 kilo backpack, but it's just filled with bottles of water. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, 
<laughs> I'm not losing my mind. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask about? Um, you mentioned there about base camp. Um, for, for someone who has never been there, I've got no real context of what base camp at Everest is like, and and getting to base camp sounds like it's quite an ordeal. Can you tell us about what it's like to get to base camp? Everest base camp is about five thousand meters. So when you think that a mountain like Kilimanjaro, which you know you can get altitude sick on there, and it's quite a big climb, is only six thousand meters. Base camp is, mm. is quite quite a significant elevation. So to get there, you've got to get yourself to Kathmandu and then you fly into one of the most precarious airports in the world where there's this tiny strip of runway between two cliffs and um, you fly in an airline called Yeti Air to land on this cliff. <laughs> So even that before you've ever even put your hiking boots on, you know, it's, just it's to make adventure. it, you go, wow, that's yeah, why yeah, take that yeah. one off. <laughs> so once you've, you know, fortunately the, the Yeti plane has actually you found it and it's landed and delivered you to to Lukla Airport. Um, you, it's then a two or three week walk to base camp um, with quite big days. So stop the days it, be, it's not yeah, two or three yeah. weeks. <laughs> I thought it was like, you know, half a day. You go, yeah, no, I'm here. No, no. It sounds like you're already mentally preparing for your next trip, Justin. <laughs> Two or three weeks. <laughs> God. Um, okay. Sorry, yeah, so, I've interrupted so, there. Keep going. Yes. So you're acclimatising and you're also trying very hard not to get sick. You know, I think um, we all really appreciate now – disease that can be passed quickly with COVID-19, but um, certainly, you know, mm. in the kind of Kumbu Valley, um, the, the risk because you're in tents and tea houses, the risk of getting a really bad gastro or respiratory infection is really high and that could cost you your entire climb if you're thinking about climbing another peak. Um, so you've got to be really careful with your hygiene. And then you make it to Everest Base Camp and it's like this tent city um, it's quite an mm. extraordinary place because you've got teams from all over the world there setting up tents that will become their home for the next two or three months um, and setting up supplies, food, fuel, um, you know, little tent showers that you can have kind of once a week. Um, and you really appreciate everything because it's carried in on your back or on a, the back of a yak or a Sherpa um, to make this incredible tent city. <laughs> Once you're at base camp, are you essentially, and you're acclimatising, does that then mean that you're waiting for that window of opportunity where the weather is favourable and you're ready to go and then it's like, okay, we've got to go and we have to go now? Is that how it works? So from there, you've got to carry gear up the mountain and you've got to acclimatise. So um, one part of my PhD was looking what happens to the heart and lungs when you're deprived of oxygen. And the reason for that was because I just found it fascinating that the human body could be pushed to such extremes. So there's been um, work done at the South Coal, which is the camp before the summit, on Everest where these crazy climbers slash scientists slash doctors have ridden exercise bikes that they've carried up there and then taken their own blood gases from <laughs> from, <laughs> from arteries or veins in their legs and they've compared those blood gases to what happens to our patients in the intensive care unit and it's quite extraordinary mm -hmm. because it's, it's like being one of the sickest patients in intensive care. So if I was to drop you on the top of Everest without oxygen, you would die. 
the only way mm. that you can, even if I was to drop you there with oxygen, you'd have a limited supply and you wouldn't be acclimatised. So the only way to actually um, be able to deal with this is um, you've got to acclimatise. So essentially you mm. end up going to camp one, dropping some stuff off, hanging out a little bit, coming back to base camp, then you'll go camp one, camp two, spend a couple of nights at camp two, come all the way back down. You'll do a trip all the way up to camp three and you'll actually spend that night sleeping on oxygen um, and then come all the way back down. And usually then you have a full rest for a week while you wait for the weather window and then you go all the way up to camp four to the summit and then back down. I had no idea that's how it was done. Yeah, and and what's amazing is that the whole time you're doing those acclimatisation trips, your body is making red blood cells and is learning how to exist Mm. in the death zone. So just even that the human body has that ability to adapt and to catch on and say, okay, I I can do this is, is quite phenomenal. What is the death zone? I've heard of it. We hear about it all the time. What exactly is it? So the death zone is this kind of colloquial term for above 8,000 metres. So that's the area, you know, there's only a few peaks in the world that are above 8,000 metres and it's basically an unsurvivable zone. So when you're on a mountain like Everest, the aim is to kind of get up and down and out of the death zone as quickly as possible because even with the best acclimatisation and even if you're the fittest most incredible athlete, your body just shuts down. So, you know, you're not hungry, you're, you're desperately, desperately deprived of oxygen um, and your muscles are breaking down. So the idea is mm. you've got to you, – and you, and you also know that you're at huge risk of um, the kind of altitude-related illnesses like when you get fluid on your brain, which is cerebral edema, or when you get fluid on your lungs, which is pulmonary edema. So every extra, mm. extra second in this death zone um, counts and really planning your time up there is, is very important. And to be honest, Justin, like – you're not making good decisions up there, even if you're wearing oxygen and you've planned it all out. So you really have to kind of plan it all out and then have a have a time where you say, you know, at this time we're going to turn around because we're not going to make the top and we want to turn around and, and come back with all our fingers and toes and come back alive. And is that what happens when, when people run into misadventure, when they really want to get to the top and they, they're so close and it's been so long in the planning that they make poor decisions and, and then it's all over? My first answer to that is that as human beings, we have to be incredibly humble in the natural environment. And so, mm. you know, we are guests there. And, you know, this term that you conquer a mountain – I don't think so. You know, you have a relationship with the mountain and um, even with the best planning and the best skills and training and team and everything, you're still at risk of an avalanche or of unpredictable weather um, or being stuck behind someone else who's unfortunately had a fall and broken a leg and that slows everything down. So, you know, there it's all a risk assessment. Everything comes down to, to risk and it's not 100% risk-free. You know, it's not called the death zone um, for fun. Mm. Um, but I think, unfortunately, some of the accidents and fatalities that happen in the mountain are just because you're in this extreme environment and you have to respect that. And then whatever we can do to minimise risk, which means, you know, having the right gear, having the right team and also not spending too long on the summit. You know, we had a very clear turnaround time where if we didn't make it to a certain point on the way up, um, 
it didn't matter how much time, effort, money went into it, we, we were going to turn around and the mountain would always be there, but, you know, we, we wouldn't. So right. I think okay. even with all of that, um, we, you feel incredibly grateful and incredibly humble to, to have been, to been at the top of these natural, beautiful places. So just on Everest, when you eventually got to the top, when you got to the summit, what's there? Um, my f- so it's a tiny little precipice that you stand on and it's phenomenal. We, we were lucky that it was a very windy day, so it was quite a hard climb up, but it was very clear. So we had this exceptional view of the whole Himalayas as they stretched out as far as the eye could see, um, which was phenomenal. But I remember watching Peter Hillary get interviewed about, you know, his feelings standing on the top of the earth in the footsteps of his father, this great explorer, you know, surely he would have felt elated. He would have felt close to God. How did he feel? And he said, you know what? I got there and I just wanted to come down. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a good good answer (laughs) because, Mm. you know, Yes, you feel amazing, but you also understand that most of the accidents happen on the way down because you're tired and and now the sun is coming up Mm. and um, the snow is getting soft so there's more avalanches, there's more crevasses. Um, So really uh, the idea in kind of high-altitude mountaineering circles is that you, you never celebrate at the top. Um, you take a picture and then you get the hell out of there and then it's only when you're safely, safely back at the bottom that you're, you're, you're allowed to celebrate. So is that literally what you do? Once you finally get to the summit, you take it like you take a photograph, soak it in and like how long would you be there? It's just a matter of minutes by the sounds of things. Yeah, I, I mean we allocated only a few minutes and we said that we weren't going to take our oxygen masks off because, you know, what I said to you about acclimatising, mm. you're just not yes. acclimatised yes. to be on the summit and yep. no photo is worth taking your oxygen mask off. Um, so we, we just had the opportunity to kind of have a hug, to congratulate one another and then to kind of make our way back down. And really it was only once we made it back to base camp that we had um, some big celebrations. And so when you get to the top and then you go, okay, we're on the move, let's go, let's head down, at what point or how long does it take to get to a, a point where you think, okay, we're, we're really out of harm's way? Is it, is it all the way down to base camp? So, Justin, remember we spoke about that Kumbu Icefall, which is that area with um, all the ladders and the moving ice. And you can actually, Mm. from gate base camp, you can watch the avalanches come through that Kumbu Icefall. And our head Sherpa, who'd climbed Everest eight times, he used to pray from start to finish of the Icefall. Um, and, And conveniently, the Icefall is placed between base camp and camp one on Everest. So, you're really not safe until you've made it from the summit to camp four and then all the way back down to base camp wow and what, can i just ask quickly about k2 because you often hear that k2 is just as hard if not harder than climbing everest i find that hard to believe but tell me about k2 yeah so i i haven't climbed k2 the the death rate on k uh, k2 if you are successful and you have to imagine that there are some pretty extraordinary people that Put themselves out there to climb K2 is one in three. So one in three people that make the summit of K2 will die on the way down. And um, that's because the, the mountain is very, the, the ascent and then descent is very, very steep, very rocky, um, prone to avalanches. Mm. 
Um, and so in a lot of ways, there is a lot more uncontrolled risk on K2 than there is on Everest. Not, not right. Again, I'm not saying right. that Everest is a walk in the park, but um, there's a lot more risk that's beyond beyond your, your capacity as a, as a climber and an, as an expert climb team. Would you ever climb Everest again? I, you know what? I, I love an adventure, Justin, and, and my list just gets longer and longer. So I'm really happy. I, I've, I've got such a long bucket list of, of, of things to do in the world. Um, so, you know, it, never say nice never. Let's go for a nice bushwalk. <laughs> <laughs> or, a, you know, a little lap around Centennial Park. But, you know, that's, that sounds more reasonable. <laughs> I, I love a lap around Centennial Park. I'm, I'm a big, big believer in just getting out there and going for a walk. So, um You'll, you'll find me out Centennial Park or, or, or swimming in the ocean most days. And so after your um, sabbatical in in Boston, what's what's the plan, Nikki? Will you come come back uh, to Sydney and, and work again at um, St Vincent's? So I've got a permanent position at St Vincent's and at the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. So they're mm. they're very much hoping that I come home. Um, and I, I love um, Sydney. Sydney is very much home, and and I'm so yes. lucky to have a job that is so challenging and so interesting and where I really feel like I'm, you know, seeing patients at their most vulnerable and being able to be there and walk with them through that journey. So I very much am enjoying, you know, I think you have to enjoy every step and every moment. So I'm very much enjoying being in Boston, but I also look forward to, to being back home. Well, Nikki, we will welcome you back home with, with open arms. We wish you well in America. And, like, that has been an amazing story you've had to tell today. It is a true honour to be able to speak with you. And thank you so much for sharing some of that with, with me and and the listeners. So good, good luck in everything that you accomplish in the years ahead. And uh, we wish you well. So thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks, Justin, and, and thanks for supporting the stories of so many incredible Monash scholars. It's a real honour to, to be part of your podcast.